0: Uh, This morning we are going to be spending most of our time in Luke chapter 5 uh, verses 1 through 11 and it's a story of Jesus calling his disciples so I invite you to turn your Bibles there and maybe put your uh, bookmark or your finger there and keep it there we'll get there in just a little bit Um, before we get there I kind of want to set the scene a little bit I I want you to use your, your creative imagination and imagine something for me I want you to imagine that you have tickets to go see a world famous orchestra uh, here in the city. And uh, it's something you've been saving up for. These tickets aren't cheap, but you're excited. And so you're bringing all of your closest friends, all of your closest family, and you're gonna go have a night to remember. And maybe because this is a special occasion, you dress in your very best suit or your nicest dress, and you you rent a stretch limo, and you go out to a wonderful dinner, maybe even Michelin, three-star restaurant or one-star restaurant here in the city before you go out. Uh, but this is going to be a night for the ages, a night that you will remember, hopefully for the rest of your life. And so as you leave dinner, you get in your limo, and your whole group of friends or heads over to the uh, Davies Symphony Hall. And you walk in, you hand over your tickets, you make your way to your seats, and you just stop and you look around. You're in the second row, and you take it all in. There's thousands of people there. It's a packed house and everyone's excited for the night that is getting ready to come. Everyone's excited for the night that's ahead. You're ready to listen to some beautiful music. And at just the right time, the lights dim, and everyone takes their seat, and you watch as a 100 accomplished musicians make their way from the back room uh, with their instruments in hand, and they they sit there in their seats, and they get all dressed, they're all dressed in nines, and they're ready to go. And the conductor steps up to the, the podium with his baton in hand, and he gets ready to, uh, to, to begin, and the anticipation is just more than you can take. And as it begins to gesture, you hear this faint sound as one violinist and one cellist begin to put bow to string, and, and you watch in confusion as the other 98 uh, put down their instruments and watch these two play their very best version of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5. And as you watch, you notice something odd. You notice that all those 98 other musicians are smiling, they're enjoying what they're hearing, almost as if they're fans themselves. And you and the other people in the audience sit there and you're bewildered for two hours while symphony after symphony after symphony is played. Uh, And these 98 sit there and don't participate at all. And as the final score comes to a close, the, the conductor, the violinist, the cellist, They all stand and they're ready for applause as they prepare to bow and the other 98 applaud vociferously and enthusiastically for the beauty of what they just heard. And then you watch as all 100 musicians stand up and make their way backstage and leave the room and the show is over. And you think to yourself, what just happened? What what, what did I just experience? Because it, it wasn't what I expected. It certainly wasn't what I paid for and I'm, I'm really really not happy and I want you to raise your hands if you think that that you'd be unhappy with that experience anybody who'd be pleased with with that experience uh, again I think that's that's natural right I think it's expected that you you would have some expectations and my question for you is why, right? You, you came there, you expected 100 musicians to come out on stage, you expected to hear all of your favorite songs played, and all of those things happened. Um, so what was the problem? And you'd say, yeah, but you know, all, all the expect- I, I expected all the musicians to come and actually play all the songs together. That's what I, I thought I was paying to see. And you think about it, what ultimately separates the 98 that were on stage from the thousands that were in the audience? And the answer is, is, not a whole lot. Both groups just sat there and looked on. And so what were those 98 people lacking that evening that the cellist, the violinist, and the conductor were not? And what they were lacking was intent. They were lacking intent. They, they were not intentional with using the time, talent, and treasure that they had in a productive way. And so without intent, they became bystanders. They became spectators to the drive of a few. I think we have one more slide we want to bump forward here. If we have the presentation loaded. Either way, uh, they were encouraging. Those 98 were encouraging. They were all present, but they weren't engaged. In short, they weren't doing the job that they were hired to do. The job that they worked their entire lives to be good enough and accomplished enough as musicians to be able to perform. And so you and I both know without me having to tell you that that's, that's a problem, right? That, that That's not really the way things are supposed to work. And so this morning, we're beginning a three-part series called Going All In. And so today's message is going to center on what it means to live with intent in the following weeks. Um, and so we're going to be looking at intent, we're going to be looking at what it means to invest, and what it means... To invite, And so as we get started this morning, I want to go to God in prayer. And if you weren't here, uh, one of the things that I challenged us all with last week was to change our posture before God. That a lot of times our physical posture can be indicative of how comfortable or uncomfortable we're willing to be in our faith. And so as we get ready to pray, I want to invite you and encourage you to do the same thing. So if you're used to sitting and praying, I invite you to stand or to kneel or to lift hands, but do something that's different, something that's uncomfortable, something that's not ordinary as we go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we, we want to worship you right now, but this time is not about us, and it's not about what's comfortable. It's about you. And so, Father, I pray that you give us the the courage to be uncomfortable. I I pray that you give us the courage to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you give us the focus to be 100% fully present in the way that we listen, in the way that we sing, in the way that we greet one another. Father, help us to do all of that to your glory. Father, you sent your son 2,000 years ago uh, to die on a cross for us. And we've gotten so used to hearing that phrase over and over and over again that I I wonder how often it loses its power. And so, Father, right now, I pray that you you just instill in us a sense of your love, a sense of of how deeply you love us and and what you've gone through to make sure that you can be in relationship with us that you can tabernacle with us that you can live in our presence and be with us and we in yours father i pray right now for the next 30 45 60 minutes however long we're here together lord that you help us to be fully present that we worship you not just with our, our voices and song but in the way that we listen the way that we open our bibles the way that we engage the way that we love one another father help us to be like Christ. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. So when you think of the word intent, there are two definitions or two facets to this word, and I think both are important in understanding the fullness of what we're talking about this week. Number one, they're both adjectives. Number one is resolved or determined to do something. Intent means that you are resolved or uh, determined to do something. And the second one is, is that you show earnest and eager attention. You show earnest and eager attention. And I think another way of saying that, or a synonym for the word intent, if you will, is the word purpose. Are are you purposeful? And if I keep going this way, uh, you're going to think that I'm a Warriors fan. I promise you I'm not. I know Ken is. I know a few of you are. Um, but I heard a quote from Kobe Bryant this week, and I'm going to steal it because, well, frankly, it goes so well with what I'm talking about today. But I think he illustrates something that's really, really powerful. Someone asked him what made the Warriors successful. And what I thought he said was, was so important because he really captured the essence of what it means to have intent. He said, I you know, I think Golden State plays with such intent. A lot of teams, the slide keeps changing here, a lot of teams play accidental basketball where they just move the ball around and they they get a shot and they take it. But Golden State plays with purpose and they know how to exploit defenses. They have experience. And what Kobe's saying is that a great deal of difference, uh, there's a great deal of difference between the basketball, let's see, I'm trying to rephrase this, between uh, basketball that just sort of happens, and the, and the kind of basketball that happens with intent, where every cut to the basket, every dribble of the ball, every jump, every pass, every shot is purposeful. Uh, you know, the, the Warriors never just run down the court and, and throw the ball around until someone is open. They work collectively as a team to make sure that key scorers get the ball at just the right time and are able to put it in the basket, because that's ultimately what wins the game, right? The Ball goes through round ring. And if you do that more than the other team, then you win. And so what I want us to begin to see this morning is that it's entirely possible to believe in God, uh, to, to call myself a Christian, to go to church every single Sunday, and yet still not live a life with intent or with purpose or with intentionality. So I can go through the motions and I can show up and I can still fall short of being fully present or fully devoted. And so much like we've prayed in each of the past two Sundays intent is is a kind of posture that we carry with us as followers of christ and if my intent is not living on mission if it's not to go if it's not to make disciples and if it's not to teach people to obey then there needs to be a posture shift right and so intent is a a posture of urgent desire for the lord so the questions remain do i desire god in prayer And do I desire God's word? And do I desire to share him with other people? Do I desire what he desires? Do I desire who he desires? Do I desire to serve him and to die to self and to take up my cross and to follow him? Do I desire to make disciples? And so living a life with intent means that when my eyes open in the morning, when my eyes open every morning, I'm actively and proactively looking for opportunities To serve my God, to share my faith, to bless someone, and to pour my life out into someone else's life in a way that is God-honoring, and a way that is meaningful. And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, he he wasn't really referring to those warm and fuzzy feelings that we think of a lot of times with love. He was referring to the kind of proactive love and concern that we show for our fellow men and women. And so he's referring to our actions as much as he's referring to our, our, our thoughts and our heart. And so living our lives with intent is the difference between, I think, playing backyard football. If you've ever played backyard football, you know what it's like. You huddle with your friends and you kind of draw a play on your hands and then you go execute. And everyone takes turns uh, being the quarterback or whatever, you, whatever it is you want to be. But it's, it's chaotic and it's messy and frankly it's ineffective. But it's fun, right? You're playing for fun. That's the whole purpose of it. But playing in the Super Bowl is a whole different story, right? Because playing the Super Bowl is a group of people who, who have been beating their bodies into submission for months, who are trying to be in peak physical condition. They're eating right, they're healing right, they're executing with precision and with purpose, and they're trying to outscore the other team. Now, one is only for fun, and the other is purposeful with a goal in mind. And that's what it means to live with intent. And that's a thrust of our lesson this morning. And so I want to get into the, the, the problem here. As we survey the, the American church, the church as a whole, um, oftentimes we see a, a stark disconnect between what we, we know we ought to do and what it is that we're actually doing. So most American Christians have grown up in the church. If you're a Christian as an adult, most of the time it means you were a Christian as a kid or as a teenager. Most have grown up in the church And yet, as we spoke about last week, there's this general reluctance or this general fear to step out and do something bold or uncomfortable for Christ. And so somewhere along the way, we've replaced this relationship with God, uh, with a living God, with simply desiring knowledge of him. Do you see the difference there? Relationship versus knowledge of him. And so I love what Dave Clayton, who's a a pastor uh, and a friend of mine, he's at a church in Nashville. I love what he had to say about this. He said that the reason that we choose religion, or in this case what I'm calling knowledge of God, uh, over relationship is because religion is easier. The reason we choose religion over relationships is because religion is easier. And you know what, guys? He's right. He's right. Because all I have to do is search my own heart. And I, I, I can tell in my own heart that it's much easier for me to come to church on a Sunday morning Or to come to church on a Wednesday night or or to go to a small group and just be present for that one hour and then go off and do my own thing than it is for me to want to be present when I see a stranger who's on the side of the road with a flat tire or someone who thinks that believing in Jesus is lunacy and I want to open up my Bible and actually share with them something or whether I'm being called to give away my money sacrificially even to someone who doesn't deserve it or even to someone who doesn't seem like they're going to use it wisely. Those are all things that, that challenge me uh, in, in ways that, that I don't want to necessarily always submit to and so I have to, I have to struggle with that. Uh, Bob Goff. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Bob Goff. He's a Pepperdine professor, um, teaches in their law school, best-selling author. If you've ever never read the book Love Does or uh, Everybody Always, both are f- fantastic books. And this is one of the most incredible human beings that you'll ever have the, the pleasure of, of hearing from. And I was listening to a podcast this week. It was a church leadership podcast, and he was being interviewed. And uh, you know, he was just kind of talking about all the crazy things that he does But, you know, he pointed out something. He said, you know, that Christians all sort of have this desire to be a part of something big. They desire to be part of something special. When you you talk to millennials... Right, 20 and 30-somethings today. A lot of us have this desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think that's, that's indicative of the, the human condition. We, we all like to be part of something big. So if there's a natural disaster that happens, tornado, hurricane, flood, whatever, people flock in droves to go and be a part of that solution. Right? We did this just a few months ago up in Chico with the fires. We love to be a part of something bigger than ourselves when the stakes are high. But is that where God calls us to live 365 days a year. Are we always on the brink of being in those, those natural disasters, those big moments? Go like this. No, that, that's not where we live on a daily basis. So well, here's what Bob Goff said. He said, everyone wants to go to the far reaches of the world, but most people won't go to the end of their street. Everyone wants to go to the far reaches of the world, but most people won't go to the end of their street. And I want you to stop and I want you to think about that statement for just a moment. And think about whether or not that's true of you. A few years ago, I was at a small group conference that Saddleback was putting on. We flew down to San Juan Capistrano, beautiful building. And there was a real intimate gathering of just church leaders from all around the country who'd flown in to learn a little bit more about small group ministry and how Saddleback does it because they've, they've been wildly successful with their small group ministry. And Steve Gladden, who's kind of like the second guy in charge at Saddleback, best-selling author himself, Uh, was talking in this in this small room probably about the size of this and he said you know I was at a conference one time and I I was asked to speak and so I I, my time to speak came up and I I went up there and he said you know I had this whiteboard and so I I just called on someone I said hey guy you know would you come on up here and do something for me handed him a marker and he said okay I want you to take this whiteboard and I want you to draw your neighborhood like draw your street and then I want you to draw where every house is on your neighborhood. And so he did. You know, Whether it was a court or a, a block or whatever, this guy drew his neighborhood. So okay, now I want you to do something else. I want you to take that marker, and I want you to write in the names of every person that lives in all those houses on your street to the best of your ability. And the guy said, I, you know, I can't do that. And so he went and sat down, and Steve continued on with his message. And uh, a little bit later, after things were done... Uh, this guy came up to him and said, I am so angry. I'm so humiliated at what you just asked me to do. You brought me up in front of everyone and asked me to do something, and I wasn't able to do it. And Steve was like, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I did not mean to, to offend you. I did not mean to, to hurt you in any way. I was, you know, I was trying to make a point. And, you know, please forgive me. Said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm, I'm humiliated. I'm, I'm, I'm so angry at what you just did. Again, I don't, I don't know what more to say, man. I'm, I'm really, really sorry. I shouldn't have done it. You know, if I, if I could do it again, I'd take it back. Please forgive me. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm so upset. I can't believe that you did that. You just, you don't understand. He said, what? He said, I, this is an evangelism conference. He said, I am the, the keynote speaker. <laughs> Later, and I'm the main speaker for this event. I'm the one who's supposed to be coming here talking about evangelism. And you just brought me up and like shamed me in front of everyone. And I'm humiliated, I've lost all my credibility for what I'm about to say later on today. And I I thought it was just such a funny story, but as I reflect on, on, on his experience, I had to think, you know, do I know the people that live next door to me? Do I know their names? Do I know their stories? And I'd invite you to ask the same questions of yourself. Do you know the people that live in your neighborhood? Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? And part of the reason I don't is that I commute a lot and I'm gone, but that's really more of a convenient excuse than it is a great reason, right? Um, I need to own that because I've, I've lacked some intentionality of going and meeting our neighbors. Although I will say our next door neighbor, Tiffany, has tried twice to go over and bring her brownies and she will never come to the door. So it's not much you can do about that, but we're trying. I was reading a book by the author, Greg Ogden. He has a section in one of his books where he outlines what he sees as the problem of a number of facets of the Christian life where he says, you know, the current reality of how American Christians live and the biblical standard by which we expect Christians to live, he says there's a disconnect there. And so he highlighted seven facets where where he says uh, the biblical standard is far higher than what the, the current Christian standard is for us. Number one, he says, you know, there's an expectation in Scripture that people would be proactive ministers. He says, Scriptures picture the church as full of these people who are proactive ministers and the reality he says is that the majority of church members are just passive recipients like we just receive stuff right number two he says the scriptures picture followers of Jesus as engaged in a a, uh, disciplined way of life but he says the reality is that a small percentage of believers invests in spiritual growth practices most of us are not doing things to grow spiritually we're just trying to be present Three, he says the scriptures picture discipleship as affecting all spheres of life. He says the reality is that many believers have relegated faith to the personal private realm, right? This is something that I do. It's, it's between me and God. And, and when I leave church on Sundays, it's not necessarily something that my friends know about or my family or my coworkers or even my, my kids or my parents. Uh, four, he says a countercultural force. The scriptures picture the Christian community as a countercultural force. And the reality is that we see isolated individuals whose lifestyle and values are not much different from much of the unchurched. He says a lot of the ways that we're talking, the ways that we're thinking, the things that we're doing are the same with people who are outside of the church. There's no difference between us. Five, he says that the scriptures picture the church as an essential uh, chosen organism in whom Christ dwells. And yet the reality is that people view the church as an optional institution that is unnecessary for discipleship. So a lot of times we, we picture church as just this optional thing. If I wake up early enough on Sunday morning and I feel like it, I go. If I don't, I sleep in, no big deal. Um, he says, six, the scriptures picture believers as biblically informed people whose lives are founded on revealed truth. And yet the reality is that most believers are biblically ignorant. You know, A lot of us don't really know scripture as much as we assume that we do or think that we do. Uh, And seven, last, he says, Scriptures picture all believers as those who share the story of their faith in Christ with others. And the reality is that we are an intimidated people who shrink from personal witness. We shy away from it. We don't want to have to deal with witnessing to someone else. And so he pointed to some research that, that Barna and Gallup have both done looking at how Christians tend to live their lives with intent. He said there's a few notable statistics he said, number one, only one in six Christians are in any sort of group that will help them grow spiritually. So whether this is a, a, a class or a small group or a discipleship group or something, he says only one in six Christians are in any group that is designed and intended to help them grow spiritually. Number two, he said fewer than one in five Christians indicate that they knew a non-believer well enough to actually share their faith with them. So once we become a part of the church long enough, our entire sphere of influence, our entire circle of friends becomes centered on the church. And we're no longer making relationships or friendships with those outside of the church and and knowing people well enough to actually share our faith. Uh, Three, this is what I found surprising. The American church for every 100 members is only bringing 1.67 people uh, to faith in Christ. It takes 100 church members to bring 1.67 people to faith in Christ in a given year. And last, uh, 8 out of 10 believers identify that success in life is driven by three things. It's achievement in family, it's achievement in career, and it's achievement in financial success or prosperity. Those are the three things in their research that Americans have have indicated they care the most about. In fact, Barnes said, you know, not one of the adults that we interviewed, think about that, not one of the adults we interviewed said that their goal was to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ or to make disciples of the entire world, or even their block. And so all of these authors, all of these researchers are coming to the same conclusions. And it's not a conclusion that's going to surprise us much at all. But when it comes to living out our faith and living with intent, frankly, there's a problem, and that problem has two main facets. Number one, uh, we lack urgency. Uh, The American church just doesn't see our faith as a big enough deal to share with people. Uh, And so perhaps that's because we, we don't fear God as we ought. Perhaps it's because we've allowed God's grace to be cheap. I'm not sure. But we don't see Jesus as a life or death decision. But is Jesus a life or death decision? Go like this. Yeah, he is. And second, we become accustomed to programs. So a lot of churches in place of actual discipleship, uh, you have church leaders and, and ministers and pastors who are, who are designing classes and things that are meant to move people along. And um, the heart and intent behind it is all great, right? You got to class one, class two, class three, class four, and so on. And now you've, you've mastered the material enough to go out and make disciples. But the reality is that we've got poor results from all those efforts. And so I, I kind of equate it like this. Is anyone here a dancer? I'm not. <laughs> but is anyone here a dancer? Okay, awesome. Um, So you guys can probably appreciate this more than I can. You can even correct me later if I'm wrong. But it seems like if you're trying to become a great dancer by going to 20 years of classes where all they did was talk about dancing, would you become a great dancer? And if you tried to become a great dancer by, by only going and sitting in a room with a thousand other people, maybe you were even all dancing, but there was one teacher, one coach, would you become a great dancer? No. The only way that a great dancer becomes a great dancer is they do something a lot. What is that thing? They dance. They dance. a lot. And great dancers have great dance coaches that look at everything they do, and then they scrutinize how they move their hip, and how they move their feet, and how they move their hand. And all of that's foreign to me, because my hips and feet and hands don't move. But uh, every great dancer has a great coach who's helping them grow, who's helping them become who they can become. And so my question is, why is our walk with Christ different? Why do we approach our walk with Christ different than we would approach our desire to be a great baseball player or football player or dancer or musician or insert whatever skill or talent that you want into that equation? And so last week, we touched on the Great Commission, um, one that you guys are all very familiar with. And uh, in the Great Commission, Jesus gives his disciples disciples. Uh, one command, one one big mission for them before he ascends into heaven. He says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, help me out. Go make disciples of all nations. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, or behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I hope that I am with you always really grabs your attention because that's where we were last week. It's Christ's promise, God's promise to always be with us, to always help us. And so in this text, Jesus makes crystal clear what the mission is. It's to go, it's to make disciples, and it's to uh, teach people to obey everything. And so these are the three big things that Jesus wants his followers to do. But you know what's interesting is I'm not sure how many Christians know or agree on what a disciple is. Think about that. How many Christians agree on what a disciple is. So it's like if I told you to go and make baba ganoush right now, how many of you would be able to do that? And I just made up that word, right? <laughs> Does anyone here know how to make baba ganoush? Has anyone heard of it before? Yeah, we've all heard of it, right? I had to look it up. I, it, without going to Google or a, or a uh, uh, you know a cookbook, no one here knows how to make baba ganoush. And apparently it's kinda like hummus, but it's with eggplant. So you like mash up some eggplant, put on some olive oil, and boom, you have baba ganoush. Uh, so, I have an activity for you. We're trying to understand what a disciple is. Uh, has everyone received the handout that I gave earlier? Raise your hand if you've not received that handout. On that handout, you're asked a question. The question is, what is a disciple? And so, what I want you to do, I'm going to get out my, my phone here. And hopefully, you have a pen with you. If you don't, go ahead and raise your hand for that. And for 60 seconds, I want you to write down your very best definition a disciple. On your mark, get set, go. So uh, there's a pastor in in Post Falls, Idaho named Jim Putman. Uh, He wrote a book, but he also has a a church that he planted some years ago. It's six to seven thousand people now. And his his church was planted with with the idea of discipleship really at its foundation, at at its core. And it's been something that they've been really, really intentional about for all these years. And he goes around and he consults with other churches. And what he said was, in all his years of consulting, he sits with with church staffs and he asks the same question. What is a disciple? So all the pastors that are on staff of these churches sit in a room and do the same thing we just did right now. And he said in all the years he's been doing this, which I imagine is a decade or two, he said there have only been two churches who have ever had uh, unanimity. In, in their answer to this question. What is a disciple? Only two churches have ever been able to give him a consistent answer that's exactly the same. So let me ask you guys, if church leaderships don't agree on who or what a disciple is, how likely is it that you think church memberships do? Not very, Not very likely, right? And second, if church leaderships don't agree on what a disciple is, then what is it that we're all supposed to go make? We're not really sure necessarily, are we? And so if you've been in church long enough, you probably have heard that a disciple is a follower of Jesus. Raise your hand if that was basically the definition that you had, right? That, that's, that's our understanding. And it, it's the right answer. It's a, it's a follower of Jesus. Uh, it's a textbook answer. But I want you to think about this. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how do I know if I've made one? And how do I know if I am one? it's not as clear as we sometimes make it out to be. And so I want to give you a tool that's going to help you lay a foundation for, for answering that question, for what a disciple of Jesus Christ really is. Before we get there, I want you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to read Luke chapter 5 all together as a group here. Uh, verses 1 through 11. And so here's what what... Luke says in the text, he says, you know, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats uh, that were left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. And so he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've we've worked hard all night uh, and and haven't caught anything. And he says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, "'Go away from me, Lord. "'I'm a sinful man.' "'For he and all his companions were astonished "'at the catch of the fish that they had taken, "'and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, "'Simon's partners. "'Then Jesus said to Simon, "'Don't be afraid.'" Hopefully that sounds familiar from last week. "'Don't be afraid. "'From now on, you will catch men.'" Or people, And so they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and they followed him. And in this story, you know, again, recapping, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching by a lake. We're not sure exactly what he's teaching or what he's saying, but he chooses to do a bit of an object lesson. He looks over, he sees these boats. He says, all right, I'm going to go get in one of these boats. And then he tells Simon to head out to, to deeper fishing water and drop their nets for a catch. And Simon looks at him like he's crazy, right? Like, Master, teacher, we just did this all night long, and we came up empty-handed. We caught nothing. But, but Simon is also wise enough to know that, that even though Jesus seems a little bit crazy, it's, it's best to follow him when he tells you to do something. And so he pulls one of those, like, if you say so, you know, kind of gritting your teeth, and all right, I'll do what you said. Um, And and so you and I as the reader, we, we know too much about Jesus at this point in time. So we're not surprised at what happens next. But imagine being Simon. Imagine being anybody out there in the boat. You've done everything you could all night to catch fish and you caught nothing. And all of a sudden this guy, Jesus, gets on board your boat and you catch more fish than your boat can handle and your boat begins to sink. What are you thinking? How are you processing what you're seeing right now? And so we don't really understand why Jesus even does this until we we begin to get to verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus shows his hand. And the whole point of this story is to show his disciples something paramount for them to begin to get, to, to comprehend. And it's something that you and I need to understand. And it's this, that by ourselves, you and I have how much power? Zero. We have no power by ourselves. We aren't talented enough. We aren't gifted enough or smart enough or charismatic enough or rich enough or powerful enough or anything enough to to make people believe in Jesus, to, to bring people to Christ. And so if we go out by the power of ourselves, expecting that people will come to faith in Jesus, we're fooling ourselves. But we're told that many will find the path that leads to destruction. And few will find the path that leads to eternal life and that there's a costliness to following Jesus, right? You have to give up your entire life to him and not everyone's going to want to do that. And so what, what Jesus shows them and I know in certain terms is that when he is with us, when God is with us uh, or when he was with them, they were able to do things that they couldn't otherwise do alone. And, and that my friends is the power of God's presence. That is the power of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is a game changer for us. And so last week, we remembered two key points. Number one, it was the command to to fear not. And and to remember that I am with you, right? Remember that over and over again. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. God and Jesus are saying those, those phrases in different words all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And what Jesus is showing them is the power of his presence and what he means when he says, I am with you because he gets in the boat and he goes with them and they do things that they couldn't do alone. They do things that nobody has done before. You catch so much fish, your boat sinks. That's ridiculous. And so the Gospel of Matthew tells the same story. We're actually gonna park here. Uh, I invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter four, uh, specifically verse 19. I want you to focus on verse 19. We mentioned this verse in passing last week, but it's gonna serve as a foundational piece for us moving forward at Lake Merced. Um, as we try to get on the same page about what a disciple of Jesus really is. Because according to this verse, the definition of a disciple, I'm going to contend, has three facets to it, or three things that I want you to be mindful of. What's the very first thing that, that Jesus says here? Come follow me, right? Come follow me. This is the easiest part, at least the easiest part to understand, because it's the part that's most consistent with the answer that all of you just wrote down a few moments ago. Um, Being a disciple means that we are following Christ. And if you know anything about these times, uh, being a disciple of a rabbi was a pretty big deal. Because it meant that you had to try to follow this guy around and imitate your teacher as best you can for years and years and years. So it meant learning his illustrations. It meant learning his stories. It meant learning his life experiences. It meant learning his bad dad jokes. It meant all of that stuff. uh, Their metaphors and illustrations. And eventually, you sort of become an extension of that person. Is anyone here an NFL fan? Football fan? I Get used to sports references, guys. I like, I like sports. Um, we see this sort of thing all the time in the NFL, where a particular coach will go and have a ton of success in what they're doing. And so other teams will go, man, if that guy had that much success, if I hire one of his assistant coaches and bring him to coach our team maybe then he'll bring some of that winning success that winning formula to us and we'll be able to replicate the success that that other coach had and so we saw this early on in the 80s with bill walsh right for all the niner fans here a lot of people tried to hire bill walsh proteges and he it was called uh, being part of, of a coaching tree and then in later years it was bill parcells people wanted to hire coaches that were part of bill parcells coaching tree now it's Bill Belichick. Everyone wants to hire a uh, coach from someone in Bill Belichick's coaching tree. And I don't know what to make of all that, except that if there's a guy named Bill who wants to coach your football team, go ahead and let him, and, because you're going to have success. But following Jesus means that you teach and you behave as someone who's part of his tree. That's what the original 12 disciples were. Uh, they were imitators of Christ in thought and in word and in action. The second thing that Jesus says here is, and I will make you, and I will make you. If I make something, it means that I start with a raw material and I develop it. I change it from what it was or what it is to what it can become. And so a tree becomes the two by four that becomes the house or the rock becomes the metal that becomes the internal combustion engine. Uh, It starts raw, but it has the potential to become something so much more. Uh, A lot of us know Mona Lisa. I'm not a big art fan, but as as extraordinary as the Mona Lisa is portrayed to be, because I don't appreciate it as much as some, uh, what is it really other than canvas and paint? It's just canvas and paint in the end, right? But it's the brilliance of what that canvas and paint has the potential of becoming that is so special. And so a disciple of Jesus is someone who's being changed by Jesus, that he he takes us in our rawest form, and he begins to mold us over time into the person that we can become. You remember Jesus' words in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? What, church? Nothing. Nothing. That is who we are without Christ. That is what we can do without Christ. Without him, we can do nothing. But in Christ, as we abide in him, as we remain in him, he begins to change us slowly into someone different than we once were. He changes us into who we can become. And the last thing... Uh, that, that Jesus says is that he, he will make us into fishers of men. And I want you to focus on that that phrase because that's the mission. The, the real disciples of Jesus do exactly what Simon did. They say, all right, like, this makes no sense to me. I'm scared. I don't want to do this. But if you say so, I'll drop my nets. If you say so, I will do what you're telling me to do. And so from that time forward, these 12 men, Uh, woke up every day with one mission with one purpose to fish for men and to tell people that the kingdom of God was at hand and to heal them and to pray for them and to bless them and to teach them and I don't think a single one of us imagines that Thomas and Matthew were piecing out on the weekends to go catch a Niner game were they no we we imagine that they were spending their time with intentionality that they, they lived with purpose and with total intent And when Jesus is by your side and you see this man and you talk to him and you look at him every day, I mean, who can blame them? There's a sense of urgency when Jesus is by your side. And what I want us to remember is that Jesus is by our side. He said it's better that he leave us and that the Holy Spirit come. Do You guys realize that a lot of us spend our time going, what would Jesus do? Like The Bible says it's better that Jesus left so that the Holy Spirit could come to us. He's with us every step of the way. And so he says yeah, there's work to do. And so oftentimes people ask some version of the question, man, if you, if you knew you only had a month to live or a week to live or a year to live, like what would you do? And I know the first thing I'd do is I'd get rid of my phone. I'd spend more time with my wife and my kids. I'd start giving my stuff away to people who would need it. And I would start telling people about the hope of Jesus. And I find it funny how that one simple question or that one simple scenario can totally change our priorities. And then that's the scenario that's in front of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. That Jesus wants the world to know that destruction and eternity, that life and death are very real things. And to those people, he says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through, help me out, me. And so Christ's love and relationship compels us to share him with everyone in our lives, even when it's scary, even when it's hard. And so I want to revisit this question. What is a disciple? You should have some blanks there on your paper. Because a disciple is anyone who follows or knows and follows Christ is changed by Christ and is committed to the mission of Christ. A disciple is anyone who knows and follows Christ is changed by Christ and is committed to the mission of Christ. And from this point forward, you will regularly hear, the, hear me say those words because they're words that give us the focus that we need to live as Christ called us, to live, I want to ask you this. What's the difference between a flashlight and a laser? The biggest difference between a laser and a flashlight is the focus. The level of focus between the two. And so Christ gives us a laser-like focus to fulfill his mission. That we have to live our lives, our entire lives, with intent. And so being a disciple and making disciples... It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen because we just hang around long enough. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens when we look around at the relationships in our lives and we make a decision to invest in them with intent. And so next Sunday, as we continue our series of going all in, uh, we're going to look at what it means to invest in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others. Last weekend, I challenged you to do something. Who remembers what your homework was last week? Does anyone remember what your homework was? Yes. Your homework was to go and do something that scared you. Not something unsafe, but something that was uncomfortable. Something you wouldn't ordinarily do. Something that required you to have to say, not by will, but yours be done. I'm going to go and I'm not going to fear. I'm going to trust because you are with me. How many of you stepped out and did something this week that was completely uncomfortable for you? Awesome. Awesome. Let's give a round of applause. Let's celebrate that. We can use our hands, guys. It's okay. This week, I have a new homework assignment for all of you. Easter is four weeks away. That's a month from now. And I want to encourage you to make a goal for yourself between now and April 21st. And here's what that goal might look like. There's a little prompt at the bottom of your page. It says, over the next four weeks, as I am going all in, I will live with intent by doing the following. And I want you to take some time this week, and I want you to thoughtfully write something in that blank. I'm going to share with you what mine is. Mine is this, that I will talk to 20 people who I do not currently know who live in our community, and I will invite them to join us for Easter worship. I am committed to talking to 20 people in our community, inviting them to join us for Easter. Now, whatever it is that God's calling you to do, I'm not going to, to dictate or ask you to make a specific goal. What I will say is this. My encouragement is make it numerical um, because otherwise if you just say, like I, in, I desire to just like, get closer to Christ. like You can't really measure that, right? But think of something you want to do. Maybe it's I want to read 15 minutes a day. Maybe it's I want to pray five times a day. But make it a numerical goal, something you can hold yourself accountable to. And make that goal and live up to it. But do something that requires intent between now and now. And Easter Sunday in four weeks, and I want you. I want to encourage you to bring that goal with you next week, where we can hopefully have some fun follow up with that. But as we draw to a close, uh, I recognize that we're all in different places in our walk uh, with Christ, and we're all going through different things. There may be people in this room who are really struggling right now. Maybe you're struggling with addiction. Maybe you're struggling with anger. Maybe you're struggling with with your finances whatever it might be and there may be others in this room who are just like praising God like man God has been so good to me God has really blessed me and I just I, I, I just need a shout out from the rooftops if either one of those is true I, w- I want to invite you and encourage you to remember this time as a church family and so in a few minutes as we stand and sing if, if either one of those is true of you and you want to share and you want to be prayed with I invite you to come forward and just just Pray with your church family. Treat your church family as actual family. The, the Bible says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that when two or three are gathered, then God is with us. And so we recognize that we live in a hard world. We live in a broken and, and, and hurting, hurting world. And we want to encourage you and uplift you and bless you. So as we sing, I want to invite you to come for that. Additionally, if you have never given your life to Christ, I don't know everyone's story in this room, but if you've never given your life to Christ, and God's Holy Spirit is doing a work in you right now, and you feel like now is the time. Now is the time I need to show intent. Now is the time I need to live with purpose. Now is the time I need to surrender to Him. I want to invite you to do that as well in just a few moments as we stand and sing. As we read earlier, Jesus said that He is the vine, and we are the branches. And as you just kind of think about that metaphor, what that means, uh, there is no life apart from Jesus. Amen? There is no life apart from Jesus. A branch that is cut off from the vine is what kind of branch? It's a dead branch, right? But a branch that is grafted into the vine will live forever. Because Jesus is a vine that will live forever. And so if you've been cut off in any way, you're ready to join Christ, I want to invite you to come this morning. Let's stand as we get ready to sing. As Nathaniel makes his way up here. Keep me on. Um, I want to share this quote I I came across from John Maxwell. You can come, come on up. John Maxwell is an author. He said, if I wanted to make a difference, then wishing for things to change wouldn't make them change. Hoping for improvements wouldn't bring them. Dreaming wouldn't provide all the answers I needed. Vision wouldn't be enough to bring transformation to me or others. Only by managing my thinking and shifting my thoughts from desire to deeds would I be able to bring about positive change? I needed to go from wanting to doing. And I would add this, I agree with almost everything he said, but this, it's not about managing our thinking, it's about surrendering our thinking and giving it over to Christ. And so when we, when we surrender, we move from the tension to intention in our life. Let's, let's sing church.